Well, if you could turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we'll be spending our time there again this morning. I think it was a couple years back, uh, and I think it was with Chris, Chris and Boaz, I believe, and we were doing some door-to-door uh, in this area. And one of the doors that I went and knocked on, uh, they asked the question, well, what does the Bible say about, um, about gay, about people being gay? Uh, and so I laid out, like, this is what the Lord says of it. This is what's in the Bible. Um, and then they looked at me and said, well, you know what, we're, uh, we're lesbians, so we don't want your God. Your God is obviously an oppressive God who doesn't, you know, know what's best for us. Um, and they shut the door in my face. Um, and that song, though no one join me, still I will follow, is ringing in my ears. <laughs> and I just walked to the next door and I said, though no one join me, still I will follow. Uh, it is about Christ. And we've been going through the book of Colossians. We are to look at Christ. We're not to seek man's applause or approval. It's Christ who we should be concerned about. It's only him. Why? For those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our eternity. We will be spending forever with him. Why would we seek man's applause, which is just temporary, when we can look forward to the eternal things and see that we will be with Christ? He is our goal. He is where we are to long to be. It's about him. And Paul brings that very evident in Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1, and reading from verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood, that the, understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the saints, uh, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his majesty, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Several months back, I was in Toronto on a business trip, um, flew over to our head office in downtown Toronto for Canadian Tire. Um, and it was mainly to just meet with a bunch of different teams that I work with, just sort of get an idea of where certain projects were, uh, see if there was anything I could uh, offer in the way of help or just reorganizing. Um, and throughout the day, I was in a number of different buildings through the maze of, of the Canadian Tower high-rises. They have four or five uh, high-rises, different buildings, and they all have similar names. And there's east wings and north and different sections. So, I mean, I was getting lost all the time trying to meet with different teams. Um, but I was in different buildings meeting with a bunch of different teams. And for lunch, I chose to go with uh, a design group there. Um, just to get to know them a little bit better. Um, they just sort of fit in with, with what I do uh, as a designer for Canadian Tire. Um, and our, on our walk to the local deli market, there's sort of this, this hidden little gem in downtown Toronto. You wouldn't think much of it, but they make amazing sandwiches. Um, and on our walk there, I was talking to one guy in particular. And I was trying to get a sense for how anyone af could afford to live in, in, in Toronto. Um, you know, the prices there are, are quite insane especially downtown Toronto, uh, close to, to head office, because my commute is 20 minutes. And I live, you know, on the far west side, out in, in uh, Crestview area, St. James, the far side. It takes 20 minutes for me to get downtown Winnipeg. Um, this guy, it took him an hour and a half in the morning and an hour 45 in the evening to commute uh, back and forth to work. Uh, he had to live on the outskirts of Toronto because the pricing for houses and accommodation and stuff was just too much. And he said that the going rate for a house near our head office was about a million dollars, roughly around a million dollars, a million and a half for a half decent home, he said, not a, not a giant one, um, but just a decent home. My immediate reaction was to just sort of laugh and say, well, I could never afford that. I guess I'm sticking in Winnipeg. Um, and he looked straight at me and just sort of with a confused look on his face Asked the question, like, why would, you, why would you laugh at that? He said, you and I, we're going to be the ones buying those houses soon. That's what this crazy life is about. It's about buying that house and having that fancy car. 
what else are you working towards? And that just sort of struck me. I, I know, and you, you can read in scripture that, yeah, the world seeks after worldly things, but to hear it straight from somebody's mouth was kind of shocking to me. I said, what is this crazy life about? What else are you working towards? Well, how can the book of Colossians be summed up? And we read it almost every Sunday, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then it continues in verses 2 to 4. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. What is the point? What is the purpose in life? It is Christ. And there will be people, things, events, opportunities that come up in this life that will try and draw you away from that goal, the goal of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, it reminds us why we should not pursue this world. Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Our goal, our aim is to glorify Christ. To not be ashamed before the judgment seat of Christ. To live a life sacrificially for him. To give our all for him. That he would receive the glory. And we're going to look in Colossians of why we would do that. Why we would want to pursue that. Why we would want to pursue Christ as opposed to the things in this life. You see, we have the opportunity to reach forward into eternity and store up treasure there. We have that opportunity. But why do we waste the time that we have on trivial things in this life? What Paul is getting at in every book that he writes is, who cares what everyone else says? That's what he's getting at. If you want to boil it down into just basic language, he says, who cares what anyone else says, thinks, does? It's Christ who matters. Follow him. And particularly in Colossians, He makes the case for why we are to only look at Christ. And we've been unpacking it each week. And for this week, we come in at verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1. And through him, I'll start from verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God of his cross. Now we need to stop for a second because there's an idea out there called universalism. It's a very dangerous, dangerous line of thinking. And the idea with universalism, and they use this passage passage in particular for it, the thing with universalism is that it says that everything will be redeemed in the end. That fallen angels will be forgiven, that there's essentially no hell and no lake of fire, that we'll all end up in the same place. That everything will balance out in the end. It's a very dangerous line of thought. And I've never been shy about telling it how it is because that's the way scripture is written. And Paul is a very blunt man. There's no scriptural basis for universalism. No scriptural basis at all. Now let's follow the context of this passage. Because they just, the universalists seem to take these couple verses pluck him out and say, well, he's going to reconcile all things unto himself, whether on earth or in heaven. So that means everything. 
everything is going to be reconciled to God. Everything is going to be brought in. And that includes the angels. That includes Satan. The context here. The scope of verses 15 to 17 is all about creation. And we looked at that last week. The scope of verses 15 to 17 is all about creation. The whole universe is in view. But then in verses 18 to 21, the focus shifts. And the scope is no longer the whole universe, but the new creation, namely the church. And so we have a change of topic. Then, in this context of the church, we read in verse 20, that he will reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth. So the all things in verse 20 should be limited to its context. Because we need to be careful of how we read. Christ created all things in the old creation, and he is preeminent over all. And that's the point of verses 15 to 17. And again, we looked at that last week, that Christ is preeminent, that he was the one who created all things. Everything that we see around us was created because of him and for him. And then in verses 18 to 20, everything that belongs to the new creation he will reconcile to himself and be head over all in context to believers. Because if it was true that all would be reconciled, that is, everything that was ever created, then who did Christ make a spectacle of at the cross? Or what is the purpose of Romans 16, verse 20, where it says that God will soon crush Satan under your feet? So therefore, reconciling all things refers to believers in Christ. Now, that's just the basic uh, version of it. There's a lot more to it there. And I would encourage you to, to look into it and study it, what the fullness of that reconciliation means. But in the context here, um, and I just mentioned that because universalism is a fairly well-accepted idea, especially particularly in the United States. I mean, it's a very dangerous line of thinking. So we have to look at Scripture in its context any time that we read it. In verse 21, it comes in and it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Yet now has he reconciled. And this is the answer to something Paul said earlier. In verse 10, what does it say? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So you're going to do this. You're going to walk worthy. Why? Because you are motivated by what Christ has done in verse 21. You are motivated by the reconciliating work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has brought you unto God. In verse 10, the word for pleasing there is only used once in Scripture. It's only ever used once. And it literally means to prefer the will of another above your own. To prefer the will of another above your own. To walk worthy means to give yourself up. That's what it means. To give yourself up. And Paul explains why you would do that in verses 12 to 14 and verse 21. To give yourself up completely. To prefer God's will over your own. So to walk worthy isn't a series of steps that you have to follow. 
It simply means to give yourself over to the will of God, to prefer his will above your own. Human nature dictates that the focus is on us, doesn't it? So to walk worthy in the natural human context would mean that I have to do a bunch of things in order to walk worthy, that there's a series of steps that I need to follow in order to walk worthy. It's works-based because it's on me and it's about me. So walking worthy in the human context doesn't have to so much mean, well, I'm walking worthy, you know, about Christ. Rather, it's I'm walking worthy, so it's about me. I have to do a set series of things. I have to do a bunch of things. See, the focus isn't correct. Paul breaks that down. He says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't work that way. You see, at the start of verse 21, what does it say? And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Like you weren't even considering God. That's what Paul's saying here. Human nature is set at odds against who God is, his perfection and his holiness. You weren't even considering God. Your raw human nature says, I don't want God. Paul is cutting right to where it matters. Human nature says it's about me. It's about me. But in verse 10, what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? It means giving yourself wholly over to him, surrendering your will in place of his will, preferring the things of God, the things of Christ, over what you would pursue. And Paul reminds us here in in verse 21, he says, you know, you were alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds, like you weren't even considering God. But he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's reconciled you. He's reconciled you. And so Paul is saying you should prefer the will of Christ because he's reconciled you. For those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Why would I not pursue my will? Well, it's because Christ has reconciled me. He knows what's best. Like, my best is in verse 21. Doing evil deeds. That's as good as I could get. That's as good as you can get by yourself. Is to be in sin and to continue in sin. A human by himself is completely wrapped up in sin, not considering and not thinking about God. And so Christ knows best. Even in that, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has done the work. Why would I prefer my own will when it is clearly at odds with who God is? (laughs) So Paul reminds us of this, that we're to prefer the will of Christ. Now the word reconcile is an interesting word. It's a very interesting word. You see it in verse 20, and you see it again uh, in verse 22. But this time you see it in the past tense. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. It's a past tense. And I want to show you something interesting. The common word used for reconciliation is the Greek word katalasso. 
It means to reconcile, to change. And the Greeks would use it in connection uh, to a marriage, uh, one that was broken. Similar in a way uh, to a divorce. So before a divorce, you try and attempt to reconcile any differences. um, And then depending on that, uh, there's the ultimate outcome. Um, And that's how the Greeks used it. That they would use this word, katalasso, to describe a marriage that was broken and they were trying to bring it back together. Trying to bring it back together. The word is used twice in the New Testament to speak of God and man being reconciled together. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And in their context, it speaks of when God and man end their battle and declare themselves partners again as they once were before the fall. Reconciliation, uh, in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend. Peace with God is made. But that word is not the same term used in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. It's not katalasso, rather Paul uses the word apokatalasso. Paul adds a preposition to the word. And whenever a preposition is added to the front of a word, a Greek word, it intensifies it. So what this word in Colossians 1 means is reconciled completely or reconciled to the uttermost. Completely and utterly reconciled. It's more intense than the regular word used in Corinthians and Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. Why is that? Why does Paul use this word as opposed to the regular use of the word? When Paul uses reconcile in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 5, it's not in an argument. He's simply stating a fact that we have been reconciled to God. But what was going on at the church at Colossae? We looked at it a little bit last week. The sufficiency of Christ was being put into question. The sufficiency of Christ was being put into question There were those who were saying that it was not possible for a person to be reconciled to God by Christ alone. See, there was the thought, there was the idea that Christ was emanating these sort of spirits. And and in order to get up to God, to be reconciled to God, you had to sort of climb a ladder, as it were. You had to start praying to angels and you had to uh, climb and ascend this ladder all the way up to God. That there was things that you needed to do that Christ wasn't sufficient. He was just sort of another angel. He was another spirit in a long line of spirits that you had to ascend upwards towards God. And so the sufficiency of Christ was put into question. And that's where you get the idea, and it's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 of praying to angels. It's mentioned there and it's referenced there. That's what was going on. That's the idea that was being introduced into the churches in that region. That Christ wasn't enough. In verses 15 to 19 of Colossians 1, Paul establishes that Christ is God. (laughs) That he's nothing short of God. We saw that last week. He was the one who created all things. Not only the trees, the sun, the stars, but even those angels who would later fall. He created all things. 
he is God. And to make his point even stronger, that Christ is sufficient, sufficiently sufficient, I heard one speaker say, Paul goes on to say that in Christ we have been completely, thoroughly, totally reconciled to God. That it's the most aggressive use of the word that he could possibly use. He says that all of this is accomplished in Christ, that it's not Christ plus something else means that we're reconciled to God, but that it's Christ only. Christ only. Paul wants to make it very blunt and very clear that Christ is not one of a series of spirits on the way up to God. He's not just another pig, but rather that he, rather that the only way to be reconciled to God is through Christ and Christ alone. That the fullness of reconciliation is found in Christ. And Paul is strategically dealing with the issues in the church at Colossae. And I love how he frames it. He doesn't go out and blatantly attack uh, the people who are spreading all of this. What does he do? He just writes it in very natural language and he says, look at Christ. I mean, the, the fullness of reconciliation is found in Christ. Like, he's not leaving any room for anything else. He's not leaving room for any doubt. He's not leaving room for any other ideas to penetrate and to get into the church. He's saying this is who Christ is. Christ is fully God. And through Christ is full reconciliation to God for the believer. It's wonderful how he... Um, brings it all all together. He clears the area of doubt surrounding Christ's deity in verses 15 to 19. And from verses 20 to 23, he establishes Christ's sufficiency to save. That Christ is all and in all. In verse 22... It mentions he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's all, like, ultimately reconciled through Christ in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And the him there is God the Father. Do you know what unblameable means? It means there is no blemish, that there is no spot. There is nothing wrong to present you holy and blameless, blameless, that there's no blemish, there's no spot, there's nothing wrong and unreprovable or, or, or above reproach. What does that mean? It means unaccusable, unable to level a charge against. Essentially, nothing sticks. Now, those powers mentioned Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and we saw, we read that a little bit last week. Let's just read it again. In Colossians 2, verse 15, because it ties into this verse very well. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The powers mentioned there, and Satan in particular, the great accuser, were very much put to open shame at the cross. We are without spot. Unable to be accused. They hold nothing over us. That's a marvelous reality of the cross. That the price has been paid. 
And that as Satan stands before God and accuses the brethren daily, accuses those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and says, well, what about Philip? He did this. Do you know what he did today? Christ steps forward and says, the price is paid. The price is paid. He is spotless. He is without blemish. He is above reproach. Any charge that Satan levels against us doesn't stick. Doesn't stick. And there's something amazing about this statement in, in verse 22. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Without spot. Just like Christ was. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 to 19 it says, Knowing that you were ransomed uh, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the second part of that, no charge, just like Christ. John chapter 19, verse 6 to 7, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. There was not a single charge that anyone could accuse Christ of that stuck. And the one thing that condemned Christ to death was the accusation that he was God. Was he not? Paul already established that Christ is God. And so the one thing, the one thing that condemned the Lord Jesus Christ to death is something that he actually was. There was nothing that anyone could level or charge against Christ. Nothing. Nothing stuck. Just like Christ was, without blemish, unaccusable, is what is applied to us. We will be like Christ one day we will be presented before the Father. We've been translated from darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son, but one day we will be presented. We'll be presented. The fullness of the statement in verse 22 will be realized. We're not yet conformed to the image of his Son, but daily we're being worked on, and one day we will. The power that translated us, that we looked at that last Last week, that transplanted us, just picked us up, and didn't just change a couple things, but completely moved us. Transplanted us from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light, is the same power that will present us. Why wouldn't I want to see that power realized in my life now? To not just wait until eternity to serve, and this is what Paul is getting at. Set your affections on things above. That's where you'll be. Why wait? Why waste any more time in this life dealing with the things of this earth and this world that will pass away? You know that guy that I walked with that said the goal is to get a bigger house, a better car, a better job, to get promoted. That's what his life is about. That's what the world's life is about. We're to not pursue that at all. Why? 
because we have been reconciled to God through Christ. The price has been paid. And in verse 23 of Colossians 1, I love how it says, which was preached, the gospel which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. It's open for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. All mankind. All mankind. And so as we go and live our lives in this world, Paul reminds us to not be caught up with the things of this world, to not be caught up with the pursuits of this world at all. In verse 21, And you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why are we to not pursue this world? We're to pursue Christ. We're to pursue Christ-likeness. Why? Because one day we will be like Christ. One day we will be presented to the Father. Let's not wait for that day and be ashamed when we stand before the living God. Because every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and a record of our lives will be read. Our sins have been paid for fully, completely. But what we have done with his gift will be brought into view. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't think anybody would want to be ashamed. So Paul says, pursue Christ. It's all about him anyways. Give yourself completely over to him, just like in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Prefer the will of Christ above your own, because your own will is to sin. The flesh wants, desires to sin. But it's Christ working in you and through you that you can be further conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we were able to open up your word. And yes, we just took a look at a small portion, but there's so much there, Lord. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. That we who were once alienated, enemies, hostile, have now been brought near. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he made on the cross. How he bled and died for our sins, our transgressions, our mistakes, the things we did wrong. Fully paid for. That when Satan levels charges against us, that nothing sticks because the Lord Jesus Christ ever intercedes for us. We thank you for him. Might our life's pursuit be about Christ. Might our life be completely surrounded by who Christ is, what he has done. Might our satisfaction, might our joy, might our happiness, might everything be found in him and him alone. We pray that we would prefer his will above our own. We pray that as we leave this place, Lord, that the name of Christ might be on our foreheads, that the name of Christ might be on our lips, on our minds, on our heart, that our lives might be defined by him. We pray that we would go out into the world and preach the gospel to all creation, that we would treasure Christ and be looking forward to that day when we'll see him face to face. We pray all this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.